Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Are you a World of Warbirds fan? If so, you can help keep this podcast going by supporting it through PayPal at WOWB17. You can also give the podcast a good review and liking and sharing the Facebook page. As always, that Facebook page is also where you can go to see images that go along with today's episode. So, loyal listeners know that this podcast is normally one that profiles an individual warbird, taking you from the design to the prototype to the operational history and post-war life of the aircraft, if there was one. However, from time to time, I like to break up that pattern by providing an episode on either a bigger picture look at some element of World War II aviation, or drilling down deeper to explore an element that might be generally taken for granted or misunderstood. Today is an example of the latter, an examination of British super bombs. Now, although I've always been interested in these big British bombs, the impetus to really get to researching and writing came after doing the episode on the Wellington, which featured the ideas of Sir Barnes Wallace. I've started thinking of Wallace as kind of like Q in the James Bond books and movies, coming up with novel and technical ways of solving problems. But he was far less wacky than some of the movie cues have been over the years. I have no idea what Wallace was like personally, but professionally, he seems like the consummate numbers guy. The cold, hard facts and numbers will lead him to the solution of the problem, even if nobody believes it in the beginning, and even if the resulting solution might be interpreted as cold or brutal. Actually, when you think about it, maybe he was the perfect man for the type of technical war World War II was. I don't think Wallace would have been interested in the glory of battle type thing. You know, like colorful cavalry charges and stuff like that. But give him a slide rule and ask him how to eliminate the industrial capacity of the enemy, and that would really get his creative juices flowing. Barnes Wallace was born on the 26th of September, 1887, in Ripley, Derbyshire, and left school at the age of 17 to apprentice at Thames Engineering Works at Blackheath in southeast London, later switching to J. Samuel White's, which were the shipbuilders based at Cowes on the Isle of Wight. While working there, he took a degree in engineering via the University of London External Program. He jumped ship in 1913 and left maritime engineering for aircraft designing. When he joined Vickers, and he worked with them for the rest of his career until his retirement in 1971. He started off building airships, including the R-80, and the much better known R-100. That was the airship that flew all the way from the UK to Montreal and back and didn't crash. Unfortunately, it was broken up and the program was abandoned when its sister ship, the R-101, crashed in France. 
Wallace moved on to designing aircraft. When the Second World War broke out, Wallace put on his thinking cap and started pondering the ways that he could contribute to the war effort and specifically to shortening the conflict, which threatened to be even worse than the previous worst, in quotations, Great War. Being an aviation guy who had worked on airships and airplanes, he figured that strategic bombing was the way to go in order to knock out the industrial might of the enemy and thus eliminate their capacity to continue the war. However, he was a realist, and he knew that most industries could, and probably would, be dispersed, and thus made harder to hit with bombs. He also foresaw how the enemy could bury critical industry underground, safe from aerial bombardment. He also knew that the present technique of aiming bombs was pretty terrible and would probably not improve much as the enemy would surely defend their industries tenaciously with AA guns and fighters. So Wallace decided to look at industrial targets that could not be moved or dispersed and ended up noticing, open quotes, highly localized stores of energy in the form of coal, oil, and water power. Close quotes. This highly industrialized war would require vast amounts of energy to turn raw materials into steel and aluminum and then into tanks and ships and planes. The good news was that it is impossible to move a massive concrete dam or a coal mine. The bad news is that the enemy could concentrate defenses around these targets like crazy and make attacking them from the air suicidal. Another piece of bad news was that the standard 500 or even the later 1,000 pound bombs of the time wouldn't even scratch these type of targets. So, Wallace decided to go low and go high. Let me explain. Firstly, he decided that if the bombs hitting from above wouldn't do anything to these targets, then he needed to attack them from below. Okay, so when I said that, did you think of some sort of sci-fi tunneling machine? Sure, go ahead and enjoy that image for a minute. But, being an aviation guy, Wallace decided that what was needed was to drop and bury a bomb deeply under the earth and then blow it up to create an artificial earthquake. By doing that, he didn't even need to be that precise in his aiming, as the explosive force and shockwave would travel far better through the earth or water than through the air. He got out his slide rule, worked the numbers, and decided that he, in quotes, just needed a 10-ton bomb dropped from 40,000 feet. And that's what I meant about going high. The massive bomb would create the earthquake he needed to shake the target apart, and the high altitude would allow the giant bomb to hit the ground fast enough to punch itself over a hundred feet deep to do its job properly. The bonus was that at 40,000 feet, no AA gun or fighter could hit it. He also pondered Europe's notoriously cloudy weather, and although he accepted that a gyroscopically stabilized bomb site would be nice, he figured that up at 40,000 feet where no one could reach them, they could take their time and wait for a really, really nice clear day 
and make a really good bomb run before dropping the super bomb. Also, you didn't really need to hit anything bang on. As you're creating an artificial earthquake, close enough would be good enough. You know, like with horseshoes or hand grenades. This bomb could be used to destroy cities too, if that's what you wanted to do. His slide rule said that the 10-ton bomb would have a destructive radius of 29 acres. A little more math said that if Wallace's earthquake bomb was built, within a few weeks you would need only 10 to 20 planes, each carrying only one super bomb per sortie, to destroy tens of thousands of acres of enemy cities. He even had a name for the super bomber, which was the High Altitude Stratosphere Bomber. This mouthful was later shortened to the Victory Bomber, which had a really nice ring to it. The only problem was that neither this bomb nor this airplane existed. When Wallace first brought up the idea, the RAF didn't even have four engine bombers, and this one was going to need six engines. Up at 40,000 feet, it would also need pressurization for the crew. So, I'm not going to say that the Victory Bomber idea went nowhere. They actually did some designing, and actually did make a wind tunnel model, but that's as far as it went. It was an idea well ahead of its time, and if you want to know what it could have been, I guess the American B-36 Peacemaker is probably a good example. So, that idea got shelved for the time being. But that was okay, because Barnes Wallace was full of other ideas. In April 1942, he published a paper entitled, open quotes, Spherical Bomb Hyphen Surface Torpedo, close quotes. This was his idea for bouncing a bomb or mine across the surface of water to strike things such as ships at anchor and hydroelectric dams. This got the attention of the British military because they were interested in destroying both of these items and they had not figured out a way to do it. They wanted to disrupt German hydroelectric production and they also had the problem of the giant battleship Tirpitz, which was anchored in a Norwegian Ford and it was threatening Allied shipping just by being there. So far, they had not found a way to damage a dam. Just hitting the concrete mass from above just wouldn't do anything. On the other hand, if you could put the bomb at the bottom of the reservoir right up against the foot of the dam, the explosion would be devastating because the water would not compress and this would pass on the entire force of the explosion to the dam face. But trying to put a torpedo against the water side of the dam was so far impossible because the Germans had put anti-torpedo netting on that side of the dam. But Barnes' bouncing bomb had the promise of being able to bounce right over a net, stop at the edge of the dam wall, sink, and then do its thing. So enough people were interested and convinced that a test was authorized on an old, unused dam in Wales. On the 24th of July, 1942, the experimenters, like some sort of 1940s Mythbusters, 
planted a mine with only 279 pounds of explosives against the bottom of a dam at Nantigro near Ryander in Wales. When they pushed the big plunger thing, because in my mind there must have been a big plunger thing, right? They blew a big hole in the side of the dam. The concept was proven and it was decided to go ahead and build a weapon. Actually, they decided to go ahead and build two weapons. One was codenamed Upkeep and the other one was codenamed Highball. Upkeep was a cylinder-shaped bomb for destroying dams that you've probably already heard of. Highball was a smaller, spherical, or kind of wheel-shaped bomb intended for destroying shipping that you maybe have not heard of. You would think that Highball would have been the easier one to make happen, but that was not the case. Highball was designed to be carried by the de Havilland Mosquito. Each Mossy would carry two Highballs, and these would be spun up by ram air pressure and then released 1,200 yards away from the side of a ship. The RAF tested hundreds of inert versions of these against old battleships in a lock in Scotland. After lots of testing and tinkering, they finally settled on a bomb that looked like a fat tire, about waist high if you stood next to it, weighing 1,280 pounds. 600 pounds of this was Torpex, which was a special explosive developed for torpedoes, hence the name Torpex. This explosive was 50% more powerful than regular TNT, and the addition of aluminum powder to the recipe actually increased the destructive power of the explosive by making the explosive pulse last longer. In 2017, divers raised several of these practice bombs. One side of the big metal ball is squished flat, and by just looking at it, you can imagine the royal bong sound that the practice highball must have made when striking the old Royal Navy battleships that were moored there as targets. Once highball was developed, the search for a suitable mission for the weapon began. This search proved fruitless. Highball would have seemed to be perfect for going after the German battleship Tirpitz, but in November 1944, Lancaster bombers carrying another Barnes Wallace weapon called the Tallboy sank the ship, so Highball was put on a shelf. I promise we'll talk about Tallboy later. Other potential targets that were considered were the ships of the Italian Navy, certain canals, dry docks, submarine pens, or railway tunnels. Highball was put back on the shelf again and again, as the various targets being considered were either destroyed by other means or deemed unsuitable for the special weapon. The USA had some interest in Highball also. Early in 1945, using parts from a mosquito conversion kit, a Douglas A-26 invader of the USAAF was modified to carry two highballs. More conversion kits and 25 inert practice highballs were shipped to the USA and were renamed 
speedy bombs and were used for drop tests in Florida. On the 28th of April, 1945, during a test run, the speedy practice bomb was dropped on the water range and bounced back at the A-26C invader, hitting the rear fuselage and causing a fatal crash. This test was being filmed, and the crash is available for viewing on YouTube. I'll post a link, and the only good thing about this crash was that it was mercifully fast. I can't imagine there was any time for the crew to register, let alone realize that anything was wrong and that they were doomed. You know what else was doomed? The highball program. It was never used operationally. However, let's back up and take a look at its better known bigger brother, which was known as Upkeep. Back in 1942, in its earlier design, it was supposed to be round also. Basically, it was a cylindrical bomb surrounded by a spherical casing. In early tests, it was found that the casing would actually shatter, but that the cylindrical bomb would survive just fine. And in the end, the round casing was just left off altogether. They started dropping upkeep testing prototypes from a Vickers Wellington bomber. However, this was a very big bomb, and soon Lancasters were being modified to carry the big bombs. Another innovation was the addition of a backspin to the bomb, which helped to add stability to it in flight and make it bounce better. And finally, it caused the weapon to roll itself to contact or be at least very close to the damn wall when it came to a rest on the bottom. The operational version of upkeep was actually known as Vickers Type 464. It weighed 9,250 pounds and contained 6,600 pounds of Torpex. To set off the device, there were installed three hydrostatic pistols, like those in depth charges, set to fire at 30 feet below the waterline. If all three of those malfunctioned, a fuse was also armed automatically when the bomb was released from the aircraft, and this would self-destruct the upkeep after 90 seconds. The Lancaster also needed to be modified to carry and deliver the weapon. Firstly, the bomb bay doors had to be removed as the bomb would hang below their level. The upkeep was held in the aircraft by two calipers, which looked like two triangular carrying arms. When the bomb was to be dropped, these would swing away from either end of the bomb and it would thus fall. Ten minutes before dropping, the bomb had to be backspun and this was accomplished by a belt-driven Vickers Jassy hydraulic motor, which was powered by the hydraulic system normally used by the upper gun turret, which had been removed from these Lancasters. Upkeep was a very demanding weapon to deliver. It needed to be dropped from an altitude of exactly 60 feet above the water at an exact speed of 232 miles per hour with a backspin of 500 RPM. If you manage to get all that perfectly right, this massive 9,000 pound bomb would bounce across the water for 800 yards, sink right up against the target precisely at the right spot, 
and as said before, explode 30 feet below the waterline at the base of the target. Once they got all that sorted out, Operation Chastise was approved and number 617 Squadron RAF was formed and tasked with doing it. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of Chastise today. Perhaps that could be a later episode. Or, heck, you can go ahead and read the Dam Busters book or watch the Dam Busters movie. Or you can make a few wishes that Peter Jackson would get around to filming his remake. But in summary, during the night of the 16th to the 17th of May, 1943, 19 Lancasters attacked three dams in Germany's Ruhr Valley. Two of the three dams were breached, causing flooding, great damage, and loss of life. Eight of the 19 Lancasters failed to return, and 53 of 113 aircrew were lost. Now, although these were pretty steep losses, the raid itself was held up as a great success. However, upkeep bombs were never used again operationally, and at the end of the war, they were unfused and unceremoniously dumped into the North Sea. On the other hand, Bomber Harris, who had never been too keen on specialized units and specialized weapons, supposedly told Barnes-Wallace that, open quotes, now you could sell me a pink elephant, close quotes. Well, Wallace didn't have any elephants to sell. But he still hadn't forgotten about that 10-ton bomb that he wanted to develop. And you'll hear all about it in our next installment, British Superbombs Part 2, on the next episode of World of Warbirds.